following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Okay, let's open our Bibles. Genesis chapter 6, so we're going to be this morning. Have you ever seen those those pictures, um, and you've probably seen they're they're black and white, and... You know, you look at you look at it from one angle and you see a horse, and then you look at it from another angle and like, I don't know, you see a jaguar, you know, and you look from another angle and you see a rat, you know, or something. You know what I mean? I mean, you ever see those pictures, right? And those, that's what it feels like when you're studying the Book of Genesis, right? You, you, we come to Genesis with this preconceived, westernized viewpoint. And our questions as we come to things, especially supernatural things, are what about, you know, you name it, right? Uh, this happened this last week, you know, obviously preaching the, the difficult, challenging text about the sons of God and the Nephilim and all these various things in that text. And, and throughout the week was fine. I'm answering text and questions about that. And a variety of questions are generally from a very Americanized, Western, scientific community that says, can this really happen? Does this really go on, right? It, what about this? Or, uh, you know, what was stowed away on the ark that God didn't know about? And, I, you know, that's a whole different discussion, which we'll hit on more today. Um, it's true. We come to it with some cultural perspectives that if we're not careful, we're going to miss the author's intent, right? We're going to miss something, right? We're going to miss coming to these chapters with just faith and wonder. That's what we're going to miss. And we, we don't want to do that. So I just want you for a moment to imagine something with me. It's going to be hard for you to do uh, because you've never experienced anything. Like some of you, most of you, all, most all of us haven't. Some have because I know your histories. But let's just imagine for a moment who were born under tyranny. I know for some of you, you think since 2020 we've been living under tyranny. You're not in tyranny, right? This is still the greatest nation on earth. I have a Belarusian pastor friend who has been exiled to Poland to plant a new church because there's real tyranny going on because of the Russian war in Ukraine. Okay, you, you should sit and hear his story. And you'll go, what? That's tyranny. So, so you imagine that you're living under this and you've grown. That's all you know. Your family heritage is that. You, <clears throat> as far back as you can trace your family tree, it's been born into tyranny. And then one day, a leader comes along who confronts the tyrant. And crazy, miraculous things take place. And this tyrant finally tells this leader, says to you, fine, you guys can leave. And so you pick up sticks and everybody in your family, every, all your nation picks up and you leave. And you're finally set completely free. No more tyranny on you. You don't even know how to live because you're so used to living underneath this tyrannical government. And you get out into this journey to go to your brand new homeland. And on the journey, this leader who seems to have some miraculous powers to him, he, he just starts writing stories. And these stories are factual historical narratives about your family and your countrymen's past. 
And every night after you've journeyed a certain way, he gathers everybody together and he says, hey, let me, I'm just going to read to you what I wrote today. He just starts reading you these stories of your past. And there are these moments of miracles where things happen that you didn't even know about or you'd heard about through the grapevine. But this guy brings it up and just shows you in clarity that God has been on your side. Imagine that that happened. Well, friends, let me just tell you, wouldn't your faith in those moments of those stories and your wonder override your skeptical questions? Because that's what you have with the book of Genesis. You need to understand, there's a debate on when the book of Genesis was written, but most scholars land in a particular time frame. And the time frame it was written was after the children of Israel had been exiled out of Egypt on their way to the promised land. And Moses, maybe, in that tent of the meeting when he went in to meet with God, was just writing notes. And as he came out of the tent of the meeting, imagine, just use some imagination here, he brought everybody together, you know, they're eating whatever they're eating, you know, the man on the road, and there's a fire built up, and he says, everybody come in. And he says, in the beginning, God. Would you, after what you had experienced in Egypt, being delivered from tyranny, 400 years of slavery, would you ask, sorry, that's uh, Siri's going off again. Hi, Siri. We love you. Would you ask, would you ask this question? Is the flood real? What about the Nephilim? Do you think they stowed away on the ark? Are angelic beings true? Would you ask that? Or would you be saying, no, we just saw our God do ten different plagues in Egypt. He took away the firstborn. He delivered us. The Red Sea has parted. Wow, of course he brought a flood. See, do you you see? So when you come to this text this morning... We've got to come to it with these eyes. You've got to take Noah's flood and, I mean, the, the Genesis flood and Noah's ark. You've got to take it off a flannel graph. You've got to take it out of your children's classroom story. And you've got to begin to look at it from the angle of, if I were an original hearer, if I'm sitting with Moses and Moses is by the campfire and he's saying, let me pull out this scroll. And he starts reading to you. And you've just been delivered from tyranny. And just for a moment, listen. Friends, if you're in Christ, you have been delivered from a worse tyrant than Pharaoh. Why? Why? Why would we ever look at God's word with a skeptical slanted eye instead of looking at it with wonder and amazement and a reason to worship? Everybody see? Okay. That's what we're going to see this morning, all right? So buckle your seatbelts, all right? Well, stand up first. Unbuckle them, stand up, because we're going to read the Bible, okay? You know, okay. All right, Genesis 6. We're going to read parts of Genesis 6 and through 8, about 27 verses or so, so just bear with me. If you need to sit down, feel free to do so. Genesis 6, beginning in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and for, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. 
And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy all, I will destroy them with the earth. With, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is the way you, you're to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its inside, in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons and your, your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kind, of the animals according to their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you, into you to keep you, to keep alive, to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that the, that the God commanded him. Now skip over to chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three sons of his wife, of three wives of his sons, excuse me, were with them in the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh in which there was breath of the breath of life, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now skip down to chapter eight, verse thirteen with me. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That they, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that, that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah <clears throat> built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. May God bless the preaching and hearing of the preaching of his word. Amen. Thanks. You can have a seat. Now, this is the famous story of the flood and Noah's ark. It's very straightforward. There's, you don't have to make things up in this story. It's very straightforward. God is not happy with mankind because of the rebellion on mankind, mankind. We saw this last week about 
how wickedness had run through the earth. And God determined to judge the earth with a flood. However, God loved Noah and his family because they walked with God and they knew God. And God told Noah and his family to take to build an ark and to take every two of every kind of animal with him on this big, massive ark. And you'll notice Noah did exactly what God told him. After the ark was completed, Noah and his family went inside the ark and God shut the door behind them and it started pouring down rain as well as the ground started swelling and blowing out water because they had never experienced rain before this particular time. And everything that had breath that wasn't inside the ark died. After the rain stopped, Noah and his family waited outside, waited inside the ark until everything dried out. When it was time, God told them to leave the ark. And all the animals followed him out of the ark. And as soon as Noah's feet touched dry ground, Noah built an altar to make sacrifices to God as an act of worship. And even though humans still had evil in their hearts, God promised to never judge the earth by a flood ever again. And aren't you glad? And that's where we're going to end today in our story. That's that's a story that we're going to cover. So here's the question. How would you hear this story if we're on this journey with Moses? Right? Go back to your camping days. You're in a tent. Moses calls you out. You're getting ready to sit down. And Moses reads a story of Noah and the flood and Noah's ark to you. How would you read this? How would you hear it? You, you might ask some questions. Probably would ask some questions. Like, what makes Noah so righteous that God would save him? Why would God judge the earth in this way and save only Noah and his family? Isn't that mean? Why would he do that? And what can we do to make God happy? If God is this kind of God that would judge the earth, what can we do to make sure that we're in the ark? See, your question, your questions wouldn't be, was this a regional flood or a worldwide flood? It wouldn't be. You, because it was a known world flood. You would have already known of all the epic stories in your day and age that would say there were massive floods. History would tell you this. So you know that floods were real. You wouldn't even be looking for a ton of symbolism. Because that's what we do as Americans. We go in and we go, what does the bird mean? What does the 40 days and 40 nights mean? What does this mean? What does that mean? And we miss the overall story of the flood and Noah's ark. You would be asking, if you're Moses' people, God can save us from judgment. How do I get saved from this judgment? And you would marvel that Noah's one of your ancestors and God saved him. That must mean that God might save you. That's what you would marvel at. And certainly, you would be looking back at your time in Egypt, and you'd say, if God saved Noah, I know he can save us because he just did it. And guess what this means moving forward for us? See? So with that in mind, here's the big idea that we're going to get to this morning. And I think you'll see this. If you know your Bibles, you're going to see biblical theology, if you will, being played out in this. The righteous are saved from God's judgment by faith. They obey God. And they worship God. The unrighteous will be judged by God. That's what we're going to see. The righteous are saved from God's judgment by faith. They obey God and they worship Him. 
the unrighteous will be judged by God. So you may wonder when you read your Bible, how are the Old Testament people saved? We're going to learn about that today. We're going to see they're saved the same way you and I are. By faith in the living God. So let's start our journey this morning by looking at the first point, which is the righteous and the unrighteous. We're told of a contrast in verses in chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. And you read this right off the bat. You can see this, this, this contrast between Noah and the rest of the world. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And then we're told the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The world was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. In other words, what you see is Noah was righteous, but everything else on the rest of the earth was not. And you'll also notice a little phrase that just should capture your attention. In God's sight. You'll also see God saw. Indicating to us, the one who determines righteousness or unrighteousness is the God of heaven, not the humans on earth. Everybody see that? So God's the one saying, Noah is righteous. And the rest of the world is unrighteous. That's remarkably important for your world that you live in because your world's going to tell you they're the determiner of what is right and wrong. And God's going to say to you, no, God saw that's evil, therefore that's evil. Or that's righteous, therefore that's righteous. Now, what we have to do when we read this contrast, if we have, we have to ask some questions like, why was Noah seen by God as righteous and blameless? What, what is it about this guy? Why would God save Noah and not save everybody else? And the reason we have to ask this is, that question is essential to understanding why Noah was saved at all. And it's essential to understanding the story of how we can be saved from the judgment to come. We get some glimpses of Noah being a righteous man in the text. You're going to notice, Noah walked with God. We talked about this last week. This means that like Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, he communed with God. He fellowshiped with God. He would call God his friend. God would call Noah his friend. They walked together in, if you will, in the cool part of the day. But we're also told in the text twice something fascinating. It's a phrase that's repeated. So you've got to pay attention to repeated phrases. We're told that Noah obeyed God. Notice twice we're told that Noah did all that God commanded, telling us that Noah obeyed God because he believed God. So you're going to notice something fascinating in the text. God tells Noah to build an ark, and not one time does Noah go, what's an ark? And why this big? Is there really a flood coming? You don't find any of those questions in his mind. Here's why. Noah believed what God had told him, and then he went and got to work with what God had said to do. Instead, we read Noah just simply obeying what God commanded. You're going to notice something. Even as the narrative goes on, you're going to notice that when God told Noah to get on the ark, no hesitation, he got on the ark. When God told Noah to get out of the ark, no hesitation, he got out of the ark. Noah obeyed God. But you're going to see something else about Noah that reveals that he was a man of faith and he was righteous. Noah worshipped God. Now, again, just for a moment, 
notice that the moment the earth dried out and Noah walked on dry land, what did he do? He worshipped the living God. Noah wasn't angry when he got the boat, looking around going, well, this is going to be a lonely place. Nobody to hang out with. Who am I going to you know, post my Instagram videos for? No, There's none of that. He wasn't questioning God. He's worshiping the God of the universe because he has been saved. Now let's go just a bit further into this, though. Notice something that God says after Noah's sacrifice. It's fascinating. When the Lord smelled this sacrifice, notice it says it was a pleasing aroma to God. Now what's intriguing about that is, in the epic stories and mythologies of the day, the, the, there was ideas of the flo- of floods. And when floods subsided, humans were, were told to make sacrifices because the gods were starving. They were hungry, and they were mad because they couldn't eat food because all the waters covered the earth. What do you see in this story? God is not mad. God is rejoicing and happy that there's worship now coming out of the heart of man. See, But notice what God says about Adam, or about Noah, that's fascinating. He says, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground. Now listen to this. Because of man. And we can stop there and say, well, praise God, God's not going to curse the ground because of man. But then look what he says about man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That word youth means from the very moment of life. So here's a question. Just for a minute, understand something. The flood did not eradicate the sinfulness of sin in the hearts of humans. Do you see this? But also do the math with me. Who are the humans? Noah and his family. Now, now wait a minute. God said that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. So how can Noah be righteous in God's sight and have evil intentions in his heart since birth? See, what what Moses is doing is helping us contrast the difference between the righteous and the rest of the world. Noah was at the same time a righteous, blameless, God-fearing man who obeyed and worshipped God, while at the same time a man who had evil in his heart from the moment he was born. Do you see that? The righteous are not perfect. The righteous are declared righteous by God because of their faith in the living God. The righteous don't do everything perfectly, but in faith. Looking to God, they obey God. See, it's the trajectory of the heart in toward God that changes the direction of the life. See, that's the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. And let me just be honest, Christian, that, that's the difference between you and the rest of the world. I hope you understand something. And you better understand this. The same evil that you gripe about in the world is active and alive in you. I hear many Christians tell me, I would never act like that. My response is, be careful because you're about to. The difference between the righteous and the unrighteous is 
We both had the same evil intentions from the womb. But the unrighteous have turned away from the living God. They do not obey God in faith, looking to God. They disobey God in defiance. Do you see the difference? God declares them unrighteous, but the righteous are different. The only difference is we have said, I see the evil intentions of my heart, and I trust in the living God to save me from his judgment and from my own sin. That's the only difference. And God declares us who do that to be righteous because of faith. Now, what's just intriguing is, imagine again, we're sitting down at this campfire, and Moses is reading on as he continues through the story of Genesis, and suddenly he lands in Genesis chapter 15, and he tells us a story about a man named Abram, who's an old man. And he's get promised he's going to have a son of promise. And you're going to notice something about Abram. The Bible says this from Moses' own hand, he, Abram, believed the Lord, and look at his phrase, and he, God, counted him as righteous. Noah is simply a forerunner of faith to Abram, who is a forerunner of faith for all of us who would Believe. Now we know this because if we were to step out of Moses' camp and we get into our 21st century world and we look at Hebrews chapter 11, which tells us about Noah, notice what it says about Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet seen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household, By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah was declared righteous while at the same time having evil intentions at work in his heart by God. And yet by faith he obeyed God, believing what was yet unseen. As Paul wrote it in Galatians chapter 3 verse 11, the righteous shall live by faith. You want to know how are the Old Testament saints saved? They're saved by faith in the living God. See, the Genesis flood and Noah's ark is showing Moses' people and us, as we go back into Moses' campfire stories, we're showing us that the righteous live by faith in the living God. The righteous walk by faith in the living God. The righteous obey God by faith. The righteous will still struggle with sin. Evil will still be at work at times in our hearts. But we are declared righteous by God because of our faith in the living God. So the first thing that this story does to you is it confronts you with this question. Are you living by faith? Are you living by faith that right now, right now, the moment you are, the moment you're breathing is a gift and an act of God. The, the electricity in your brain that fires rightly right now is an act of the living God. Are you living and understanding that in your moving and your breathing and your existing is an act of the living God? Do you live that way? Do you believe that this life and the next are dependent upon the living God? See, that, that's what Moses is telling his people. Don't, don't, you see why this isn't a kid's story? It is a kid's story, but it should stir something about faith in us. There's a second contrast that I want you to notice in in the story of Noah and the flood, and it's about judgment and salvation. 
It's, you'll see this contrasted with the flood and the ark. Right? So we have the righteous and the unrighteous. We've also got the flood and the ark. Notice in chapter 6, verses 16 and 18 through 18, that the Lord told Noah to make the ark because a flood was coming that would destroy everything that had breath. But God would establish a covenant or a promise, which is the first time we see this in the Bible, with Noah and all who are in the ark. Now, next week we'll talk about the covenant with God with Noah. The following week we're going to talk about how God works through covenants to be faithful to his people. Right? But today, just notice what God said. He's going to make this covenant with Noah. This tells us something, that Noah, the righteous one, would be saved by being inside the ark. It also tells us that the unrighteous, all other people who do not put their faith in the living God, would be judged outside the ark. It also tells us that God's covenant is with righteous people who put their faith in the living God. Right? You can see these contrasts. But chapter 7 gives us more contrast along the same lines. Notice, all who were in the ark were saved from the flood. And notice critical things here. Once inside the ark of salvation, God shut them in. Now just think about that. Without the door closing, they're not getting saved. The flood's come, and that ark's just going to sink to the bottom. But God shuts this door behind them. Once all who were in the ark that God decided needed to be in the ark, God closed the door. That tells me there's no stowaways. God had the manifest list. God knew exactly who was on and said, check Noah, check your wife. Okay, you got your three sons, three daughters, three uh, daughter-in-laws. Check. Good. Shut the door. And you'll also notice that only Noah, only Noah, and only those inside the ark are saved by this act of God. But you'll notice in chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, that everything that had nostrils, that could breathe, that was outside the ark, died. And what you're going to notice when you read chapter 7 is, it's this constant... He's saying the same thing over and over again. Those in the ark lived, those out of the ark died. Those in the ark lived, out of the ark died. In the ark lived, out of the ark died. And you have to ask, why is he doing this over and over and over and over again? Because Moses is contrasting the judgment of the unrighteous with the salvation of the righteous. You cannot cannot miss this. The unrighteous who don't have faith in the living God who rebel against his holy laws, will perish in God's judgment. The righteous, those who put their faith in the living God, who obey him and who worship him, will be saved from God's judgment, and God will be their God. He will covenant with those people of faith. God's salvation is God's doing and God's decision. So again, if you're Moses' people, what are you hearing? You are hearing... To be saved from God's judgment, believe, have faith in the God of heaven. To be one of God's people, believe in the God of heaven. To have God's favor on your life, believe in the God of heaven. See, do you see? But there's more here that we just cannot miss. Moses is also reminding his people of something fascinating. God's judgment of the wicked is God's way of saving his people. Don't miss this. This is a biblical motif that you're going to see throughout the Bible. Now again, let's just do our math for a moment. 
you've just been released from tyranny. Now, if you know your history, you would know that while the people of Israel were in Egypt for 400 years, Moses, this leader, rises up. At the time, Moses led them. He was 80 years old. Now, imagine for a moment that you're an older lady. Let's say that you're 110 years old. And you don't have a son the age of Noah or the age of Moses because Pharaoh killed your son. See, what what these people are recognizing is all sorts of injustices have been done behind them. And you've just been released from all of this tyranny, all of these bad things from Egypt. But how did you get released? You got released by God sending ten plagues or ten judgments on Egypt. And those judgments became your salvation. Now, if you know the story of the people of Israel as they were leaving Egypt, you're going to know something. The very last plague was God saying, I'm going to eradicate all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, including their animals and their boys. Right? Know the story? And the only ones that are saved are those who put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, which were the people of God. Now, many people would say, how mean of God to destroy the Egyptians? How mean of God to do this to these people, to eradicate this firstborn people? Why would he judge them? Well, here's why he'd judge them. You don't mess with God's people. The reason why God put ten judgments on his people was one phrase. Let my people go. It was God's way of saying to break tyranny's back. I've got to judge tyranny and evil. And in that judgment of tyranny and evil was the salvation for God's God's people. God's judgment on Egypt was God's act of salvation on his people. Now, you're going to see this throughout Israel's story. From their taking of the promised land, you're going to see all sorts of judgment on the wicked so they can have the promised land. Even to when they get into the promised land and they do all sorts of wickedness, you're going to see them get exiled in judgment to save the righteous remnant of God's people who believe in his great name. You're going to see this over and over again. God's way of saving his people is by judging wickedness. All around you, you're going to see this. And we're going to notice it even later on. The last thing I want you to notice about this, it's really important, is notice that it is God who does the judgment and God who does the saving by his own means. I mean, just think about this. God is the one who brought the flood. No, Noah has no ability to bring a flood. God gave Noah the idea, the design, the materials, and the ability to build the ark. All Noah did was pick up a hammer, which God gave him the ability to use, and God made the tools for the hammer and the materials for the hammer to make that ark. And then when he's in the ark, what did God do? He closed him in. Then God brought the rain. This is God's, Moses' way of saying the only way to be saved from God's judgment is by God's plan for salvation. So again, how how can people be saved from God's judgment? Well, the people of Moses' day would say, be people of faith like Noah. Believe in the living God. Or as we're going to see in a moment, believe in an ark but believe in a cross. Which brings us to our last point, which is the faithfulness of God. See, what you have in this story 
are these remarkable contrasts, righteousness and unrighteousness, and judgment and salvation. And this story reveals to us something. It reveals the faithfulness of God in the past and the promise of the faithfulness of God to the future. See, this is, again, why we've got to take it out of just a children's story we tell our kids about, and we, you know, pull out all the little, you know, they got the little mobiles that has Noah and the ark on it, and we kind of play those little songs, and we sing the little ditties and the whole thing, and not miss, this is a story of the faithfulness of God to his people. See, this story, on the one hand, is a reminder that God has a plan to deal for evil in our world. And I hope you understand this. Again, just consider Moses' people for a moment. Take that young, that older woman, 110 years old, watching Moses lead the nation of Israel, and in her heart saying, when is God going to deal with Pharaoh for taking my son? Imagine that young man who knows his history and can trace his great, 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 great granddaddy to the time when they were in Egypt and knowing as he heard the story that one of those Egyptians happened to take his grandfather out and beat him to death. Imagine that man who probably lost his wife to some Egyptian who came in, stole his wife and beat her to smithereens and took her out and drug her out. What would you be asking? When is God going to have his day? When is God going to deal with all the stuff we've seen? Imagine then being the people of Israel and you're walking and you're going to the promised land and you have these foreign armies out of no, for no reason at all trying to eradicate you from the face of the earth. And every time, once you finally land in the promised land, they're still trying to eradicate you from the face of the earth. What would you be asking? When is God going to have his day? When will God deal with the evil that we've all seen? Well, guess what Moses is saying to his people? Noah's flood is a picture that God has a plan. But what about some of you? Listen, i got to be honest with you. I... I've been in ministry um, for almost 34 years now. And I've never seen more unrighteous Christian anger than I have in the last three years. When is God going to have his day? Now, some of you, I know some stories from your lives, and you share them with me because I'm your pastor, and I love you, and you want to share things with me. And I know that some of you, you face terrible abuse. It's been spousal abuse. It's been long-term parent abuse. And maybe in your heart you've wondered, how long, oh God? When will you have your day? Friends, Genesis 6 through 8 is a reminder to you that God has a plan to eradicate evil. But it's also a reminder that God has a plan, not just to judge evil, but a plan to save his people. It's a plan to care for his people. God shutting Noah and his family in the ark is the equivalent of God putting them in the palm of his hand as the storm hit and holding them and caring for them. Nothing was going to touch his people from his judgment. Matter of fact, I've often wondered, did any mist hit Noah in the face? I probably bet it didn't, because God basically told Noah, not one ounce of my wrath is going to touch you inside that ark. 
You're going to cover it with pitch, and you're going to make sure everything is covered. And when I bring the rain, you are safe in my hands. I'm not going to let anything touch you. That ark is a picture of God carrying his people and making sure his judgment never touches them. His covenant with Noah and the people of faith is a reminder, listen clearly, that God's eyes and God's heart are always on his people of faith. And I hope you believe that. Those who put their faith in the living God are those who are his, and he will always care for them. And listen, he will always save them from his wrath. Not one ounce of God's wrath will ever be aimed at you. Matter of fact, we could even go so far as we'll see in a moment. God's smile is toward you every moment of every day if you're in Christ. God has a plan, the plan, to deal with evil and care for his people. Now, you're going to notice something in the Bible that's really fascinating. Again, let's step outside of Moses' campground stories, and let's now get back into the 21st century and look at the Bible in the lens of progressive revelation. You're going to notice in the Bible there are three worldwide judgments and three, if you will, worldwide salvations or moments where God's people are saved. One we just studied, Noah's Ark. The Ark was God's saving method of God to save his people from the judgment of God. God judged evil while saving his people. The second one is the cross of Jesus Christ. All those in the ark were saved from the judgment of God, and all those in Christ Jesus are saved from the judgment of God. See, what Jesus' cross is, is a judgment from God that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what Jesus' cross says. Listen, if we were just okay, Jesus never would have come. If we were just needing to get our best life now, he would have sent Dr. Phil, not Jesus. He sent Jesus to say something. Man's heart is evil from his birth. Man's sin has separated him from me, and he is a sinner. There's no way he can be declared righteous unless he believes in the Savior that I have sent. Only those who put their faith in Christ Jesus are declared righteous by God. Jesus' cross is the judgment on our sins and the salvation for those who trust in him. But there's another moment. It's at the end of time when all things are rolled up as a scroll. And Jesus mentions this in Matthew 24, talking about Noah's flood. And he says this, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. As in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware that until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In the end, friends, there will be an ultimate and final judgment on evil, and there will be an ultimate and final salvation for God's people. Now here's what this tells us. It tells us that God is faithful to his promises, and God is faithful to his people. He has the plan to deal with evil, and he has the plan to save his people. That should mean something to us. It should mean something first. If you're not a person of faith, it should tell you that you need to be. Because there's coming a day 
When judgment will come, every one of us will die and face the living God in judgment. And if you want to be saved from that judgment, you need to put your faith in God's plan through Jesus. And you can do that today. We would encourage you, listen, don't walk out these doors without doing business with God or grabbing a friend or somebody you don't even know and say, how do I get saved from that judgment that loud preacher kept talking about? How do I do that? But it also means, though, listen, if you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, it means this: you are saved from God's judgment and your God has closed you in Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. It means that your faith then, because that's happened, will be evidenced by you obeying God in faith and worshiping God in faith. I mean, again, think, the moment we got off that ark, what would we, what would we be doing? Worshiping God. The moment the Red Sea parted, what are we going to do? Well, friends, we have been saved from a greater tyrant than Pharaoh, and we've been saved from the greater wrath than the flood. You are saved from the eternal justice and wrath of God and from the slavery of your own sin. You're saved from being eternally separated from God's mercy, grace, love, and patience. And guess what the response simply is? We believe and we obey. We believe and we worship. A.P. Ross put it like this. In a word, God restored human dependence on him by making people aware of their impotence. By sacrifice, Noah expressed his submission to the gracious government of God in his life and in his world. By it, he confessed the evil in himself and his fellows, which he had brought ruin, which had brought ruin upon the world. And by it, he acknowledged the wonder of the wisdom of God in redeeming and restoring life. Is that how you see your salvation? A means and a reason to worship. God is faithful to his promises and his people, and this should cause us to worship and obey him. But there's one last thing I want to just drop in your lap as you think about this and you leave today. Child of God, I want to stir something with you. God has a plan to deal with evil, and that means, listen clearly, one day, one day, God will have his day. One day, justice will roll down like the river. One day, all things will be laid bare before the risen Christ, and he will deal justly, perfectly, and righteously. All the wrongs ever done to you will be made right by the risen Christ. All injustices will be brought to justice. And if you believe that, here's what it means for you. Here's what it means. You do not have to let unforgiveness and bitterness rob you of life any longer. You don't have to let unrighteous anger dominate your heart any longer. You do not have to let anxiety over all the craziness in this world dominate your thinking and cause you to be confused about God's plans. Sinful, crazy, bad, awful things are going to happen in a Genesis 3 world. But listen, your God will never leave his people, and your God will make sure you are saved from the wrath to come, and he, your God, will have his day. He will have his day. So you can, you can rest in his sovereign care. 
You can act in a world of craziness with God's means and God's tools and God's spirit, not by your own fleshly attitude of vengeance. And I want to get a pound of flesh. Those days are over in Christ. Friends, the righteous are saved from God's judgment by faith. We obey God by faith. We worship God by faith. We walk with God by faith. We love God because He has first loved us and He has first walked with us. See, do you believe that? Well, if you do, there's plenty of reasons to worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for revealing to us the gospel of grace in Genesis 6. Thank you for revealing to us Noah, the man of faith, declared righteous before you. Saved in that ark, pointing us ahead to the day when our Savior comes for us and has come for us. Thank you. I pray for friends that are here that don't know Christ. I pray that you would help their hearts and stir their hearts to trust in the Savior, Jesus. I pray for those of us that are in Christ. Lord, would you just point out to us where we have we have not seen clearly our salvation to stir us to worship and obey. And even now, Lord, as we prepare to go to the communion table, We're going to take these elements to remind us of what you have done on our behalf and what your plans are in the future. Help us to posture ourselves with an attitude and a heart of worship and obedience to your great name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.